good to see all of you, and I just want to thank you so much for all your diligence over these weeks to to, uh, work our way through the book of Galatians, and it's been a real wonderful adventure for me, and so I hope it has been for you. I was thinking about what a beautiful day it is today, and last week, remember, we got out of here just in the nick of time with the ice and the slush, but um, I was laughing because... I came out on these steps with Wendy Lyon, and my feet went out from under me, and I fell down the first couple steps, and my papers went flying all over the parking lot, and Wendy was standing there screaming, and I was telling Shelly about it, and she said, I have two thoughts. One, I wish it didn't happen. Two, I wish I could have seen it. I thought, what a friend. I'm kind of overwhelmed today to talk about um, love, not only how much Christ loves us, but our call to love each other as Christ loved us, not as the world calls love, but as Christ defined it. And um, we are called to love all people, but Paul is talking about in these chapters loving the body of Christ. We're to have a special love for other believers and we're going to see why in just a minute. And I, I do have to say this. When people say to me, what makes Christ Chapel such a wonderful place? It's because that's what you guys do so well. It's because of the people here are so loving. It's true. And it's just exciting for um, me to get to be a part of a fellowship where people really do love each other like that and, and share in each other's burdens and joys like we did this morning. So it's fun to look at that. Love was Paul's motivation behind the book of Galatians. He loved Jesus Christ, and he wanted to protect his gospel. He loved the people of the Galatian churches, and he wanted them to grow in this gospel. And when we look at Paul's life, we realize love is not always easy. Loving others can be hard. He endured travel hardships, persecution, physically, persecution verbally, rejection from those that he really loved deeply, his name being slandered. And I think, why in the world did he persevere like this? I think one of the reasons Paul could persevere in love is because he tasted so deeply of how much Jesus loved him. That makes all the difference in the world in how much we end up loving others. Look at Ephesians 3 on your verse sheet. I pray that you may have the power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Paul was persecuting believers while Jesus was pursuing Paul. Paul was immersed in self-righteousness while Jesus was dying on the cross to purchase Paul's righteousness. Paul didn't know the name of his Savior, but Jesus knew Paul's name. Paul did nothing to merit the love of Jesus. And Paul knew this very well. In fact, he describes himself in another gospel that Christ appeared to James and the apostles, and then he appeared to me as one abnormally born. 
the least of the apostles, who doesn't deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. So when we look at Paul's life, we realize we love others because he first loved us. Look at 1 John 4. Since God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. We love because he first loved us. If we understand how deep and wide and long and high that love is, we have that motivation. We have that energy to pass that love on to others. And we also have an understanding. We don't wait for those people to deserve our love. Because God loved us in our sins. God loved us unconditionally. And there's no way we can love the unlovely without recalling the fact how unlovely we were when Jesus died for us. When Christ first called out our name like he did Paul in the midst of our sinfulness. I read about St. Francis of Assisi when he was in a time in his life when he was coming to understand what this love was all about. And he was on a dirt road, on a horse, driving past this place that all the lepers stayed. And anybody that drove past that place on their horse, you know, went as fast as they could because you didn't want to have anything to do with lepers. They were always segregated and separated from any kind of affection, from any kind of relationship. And St. Francis of Assisi was horrified to see that as he's trying to ride past it on his horse, a leper is standing in the middle of the road. And so he stops his horse, and the leper doesn't say a word, but he also doesn't get out of the way. And so St. Francis of Assisi watches him for a while, and the leper is just looking into his eyes. And so St. Francis gets off his horse and comes towards the leper and takes his hand, his gnarled, flesh-eaten hand in his, and the leper shudders for a second because he probably hadn't felt anyone touch him in many, many years. And then the story goes on to say St. Francis took his hand and put it to his mouth and kissed it. And I thought, what a picture of what Jesus did for us at our moment of salvation. We had nothing. We had nothing to give him. We were ugly in our sins. And he came to us. And he loved us. It's an honor to love others like he loved us. We love also because Christ commands us to love. Look at John 13. A new command I give to you. Love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this will all men know you are my disciples, if you love one another. It's not really a new command to love one another, because we've talked about how that was part of the Old Testament. But it was new in that now it had a definition. Now when we look at Jesus Christ, we can understand what the love of God really looks like. We have a better picture of that. We love as he loves. And Jesus says, you might add this after your verse, we love because he commands us to, because then the world will know that we follow Jesus. We love patiently, diligently, unconditionally, 
sacrificially, completely. The best picture of that is the night when Jesus was betrayed. And he's at the Last Supper. And these are his best friends. These are the people he's invested the last three years of his life in. They're about to all run away and betray him. And we see Jesus down on his hands and knees, washing their feet. This is the kind of love we are to show each other. I read about a um, pastor in a small town, and it said this, There's a pastor who disappears every Friday morning for several hours. His devoted congregation boasts that during those hours, their pastor goes up to heaven and talks to God. So a stranger moved into the town, and he's skeptical about this. So he decides to go check things out. He hides and he watches. And the pastor gets up in the morning, says his prayers, dresses in peasant clothes, grabs an axe, goes into the woods, cuts some firewood, which he brings to a shack outside of the village where an old woman and her son live. And he leaves them the wood enough for a week and sneaks back home. Having observed this pastor's actions, the newcomer stays on in the village and comes to know Jesus Christ. When we love sacrificially, we do point others to heaven. We are going to heaven when we do that, and it demonstrates to others the same love that God has for us. On your outline, true love is also a result of walking in the Spirit. Last week we saw that when we're yielding to the Spirit, we set aside our flesh, we nurture our spiritual life, we get to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. All these fruits are about love. Life apart from the Spirit is a life without love. It's a pursuit of nothingness. I was thinking about this lesson. I was coming out of University Square while I was working on it. And there was um, a mature woman in front of me pulling out on the road. And a car was coming, but it was half a block down the road. So she went ahead and pulled out. Well, this young teenager in a black car decided, whoa, he was mad that she didn't let him go by first. He maybe had to take his foot off the gas pedal for a second. I mean, they were far apart. And he sped up and got on her tail and was honking and making gestures. And then he pulled in front of this poor little woman, slowed his car down, and he followed her doing that all the way onto Vickery, which was the way I was going. And I thought, that guy needs a spirit. (laughs) It was so sad to me. I felt more sorry for him than the woman because I thought, that's what life is like if we don't know God. If we don't walk in the Spirit, we are pursuing the most silly things fast and furiously that take us nowhere. Jesus brings us a reason for living, caring about people, not being angry at people, not being selfish. We actually have a purpose to be here. It's a privilege. We love because this is how God builds his church. Look at 2 Corinthians. I love this verse. Paul says, I've labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And besides everything else, 
I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak? And I don't feel weak. Who is led into sin? And I don't inwardly burn. You and I aren't necessarily facing these kind of persecutions Paul was here. We don't always lose sleep. We aren't always cold. But this is a a verse that tells us what our love should be in the church. When someone's weak in the church, it should burden us. When someone strays in the church, it should distress us. And when we have those concerns one for another, we are building the church into a strong, healthy body. Let's look and see how we define Christ's love in Galatians 13. And I forgot my Bible. Can someone hand me a Bible? (laughs) Thank you. That would have been important. Galatians 13. I mean Galatians 5. Duh. Then we'll look at verse 13. Just the first part. You, my brothers, were called to freedom. Okay, what is that freedom? Freedom from that oppressive, legalistic Jewish system that they had been under. And it's a freedom that comes when we know I am fully accepted before God. Because of the offering of Christ on the cross, I'm fully forgiven. I'm fully accepted. And then we have to ask ourselves this question, I am free. I am free. So now that I'm forgiven, do I just go out and live my life however I want? I have that freedom. I like to tell the story, um, which probably Tyler doesn't like, but my son Tyler, who when he got his driver's license, we uh, went to go get it in Weatherford. And you know how when you're first driving, you don't have a clue about much? It's pretty scary. You have a license, but you're pretty clueless. So, I mean, the day he gets his license, I'm in the car with Tyler. We've got our neighbor's foreign exchange student in the back seat. And we're driving down the freeway, and a car is stopped on the freeway. And Tyler's, you know, doing 70 in the right lane. And I'm like, okay, Tyler, see way up there that car stopped. You need to slow down. Mom, no slowing down. You and I know how long it takes to slow down. He doesn't. So I say, Tyler, that car's not moving way ahead. You have to start slowing down. Mom, it'll be okay. He keeps going. He keeps going. I start yelling at him. The, the guy, the poor student in the backseat's eyes are this big because I'm, I'm pounding the dash, and I start pounding Tyler's leg. You have to put on the brake. Put on the brake. And Tyler's like, Mom. And sure enough, fortunately, whoever was stopped on the freeway started going, and so we didn't crash into them. And then Tyler just thought, you were so worried about nothing. <laughs> I thought, this is a great picture of when we have that license, we're free, we can't just do what we want. We are facing destruction. We are facing danger. If we just take off in life, we are in big-time trouble. I read this great quote. Christian freedom isn't licensed to do whatever we want for the simple reason. The Christian isn't the person who now is free to sin. 
The Christian is the person who is now free not to sin. What a great truth. Look at verse 13, the second half. Don't use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. On your outline, loving others is an outpouring of the freedom we receive in Christ. And liberty's goal should be love and not license. Christ has freed us from being all about ourselves to being all about others. Think about Paul. He admitted that earlier in his life, he was all about being zealous about keeping traditions, advancing in Judaism, being an important Pharisee. He was caught. He was entrapped in a lifestyle that demanded self-righteousness and self-focus. But when we realize Christ has set us free from these legalistic works, as well as from the sins that controlled us, then we realize we come out of that darkness and say, hey, there's people around me that need me. I'm going from a selfish lifestyle to a servant lifestyle. That's my new goal in life on your outline. No longer in bondage to our selfish nature. We are to be in bondage to one another. I almost didn't want to use that word bondage because it's not a burden. It is a joy. We have a purpose. We get to act like Christ. One of the first ordinances that Moses wrote after the Ten Commandments is a picture of what Paul's talking about here. Serving God out of a sense of love and not duty. The ordinance said that if a Hebrew purchased another Hebrew as a slave... After six years, that Hebrew had to free the slave. But if the slave would say, I love my master, I will not go out as a free man, then the master would take the slave to God, have his ear pierced, and he would become his slave permanently. Christian freedom is about doing what this Hebrew slave did saying, I'm going to surrender my plans of the flesh to, to surrender to my master's holy plans out of love because I love him. Look at 2 Corinthians 5. It's Christ's love that compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and raised again. Paul says the law is fulfilled in this one word, love. Look at verse 14. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. We are not bound under the system of the law. We've been talking about that for five weeks. But just by being loving the law, we actually fulfill the moral elements of it. Because you read in Romans 13 that the Ten Commandments, they all revolve around loving each other. When the Pharisee came to Jesus and said, what's the greatest commandment? Christ said to him, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second greatest commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. Both of these are about love. The false teachers. 
They didn't require love. They didn't require compassion. They required rituals. They required circumcision. They required observing specific days. A very inferior system to the way of love. They had lost sight of love. Paul, so I think Paul may be saying in this verse, okay, you false teachers keep saying you have to add the law to faith. You don't even do that. It was about love. You aren't doing that. In fact, look what, look what they're doing in verse 15. Paul says, if you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. It's not hard for us to envision after what we've been looking at in the churches of Galatia to see this kind of bickering going on in the church. And I think we can blame the false teachers for the most part. What's the foundation of the church? Jesus Christ. What was the foundation that the false teachers wanted the church to be? The Mosaic law and keeping rituals, circumcision. I listened to a tape once many years ago that was really interesting to me. This man had a ministry. When a church was having a lot of conflicts, he would go to the church and meet. And this is what he would always do. The first night he got there, he would say, we're all going to meet, and I'm going to sit and listen to you all. So all the people in the church that felt like they had something to say would come, and this man would sit and listen to both sides. And in that time, he would deduce who the leaders were that were causing confusion and conflict in the church. And then he would look at them calmly and say, you have to leave the church. He said, you're causing disunity in the body of Christ. You must leave. This isn't a work of God. God doesn't divide himself. Remember two weeks ago, this is what Paul told the Galatians to do with the Judaizers. Cast them out like Ishmael and Hagar were cast out. Because guess what love is not? On your outline, love is not divisive. By letting these false teachers stay, there were factions in the fellowship, people who followed the legalists, and people who followed those who had accepted the true gospel. They were biting and devouring each other. Isn't this sad that Paul has to compare these people to animals instead of his brothers in Christ? He was probably thinking about the dogs that would just infest these cities in the east, eating anything that they could. And I think biting and devouring could mean judging and condemning. Here, these wild dogs would be fighting to the death. In fact, destroyed means destruction by fire. And when a fire comes, what's left? In fact, you probably can think of a church off the top of your head right now that doesn't exist any longer because of this factions and divisiveness and selfishness in the church. Let's see how else we see what love is not. Look at verse 26. And Paul also says, Let's not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. One Bible translates this, let us not be desirous of vain glory. More division, this time because of selfish ambition. 
And we picture the false teachers again. Everything they were about, everything they tried to bring to the church was all about bringing glory to them and bringing glory to their system. So if anyone wanted to challenge it, their pride would be offended. Their fury would be unleashed because it was interfering with their own plan. Luther says this, He that teaches any error or the author of any new doctrine can't help but provoke others. And when others don't approve and receive this doctrine, by and by, he begins to hate them most bitterly. This is not the love of Christ. On your outline, love is not self-serving. Look what Paul says in Philippians on your verse sheet. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you shouldn't look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let's see how God designed this kind of a love to build his church. First of all, we love those who have sinned. A pastor once said this, I've often thought that if I ever fell into a trespass, I will pray I don't fall into the hands of the critical judges in the church. Let me fall into the hands of the barkeepers, the homeless, and those on the streets. I could not survive the wagging tongues of the church people. That is pretty sad. That's not the way God has designed the church to function. Look at verse 1 in chapter 6. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself or you also may be tempted. Okay, what's one of the first things we learn in this verse? When we have the Spirit, can we still sin? If we ever had a wonder about that, this verse puts an end to it. Remember, when we have the Spirit of God, our fallen nature does not disappear. In this case, caught in a sin, it seems that it's not a sinner who's deliberately planned a sin. It's someone who stumbled or fall. That's how that word sin here is interpreted. And so it's no less a sin, but it's like you would slip on an icy road. This believer has become careless and is not on guard, and they make a choice that brings them to be captured by their sin. The word here doesn't mean someone caught them in their sin. It means their sin captured them. In fact, the King James Version says we are overtaken by a fault. What's our job? On your, on your outline, we pick them up and we get them back on their feet spiritually. How does this happen? Number one, on your outline, the spiritually mature get involved. That's what we learn in that verse. And we saw last week that those who are spiritual walk by the Spirit. They're not controlled by the flesh. Look over at verse 16 in chapter 5. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. That's what I would say is a spiritually mature individual. 
Secondly, the hope is restoration on your outline. The word restoration there in the Greek means to set broken bones. And in the New Testament, it was also used for mending nets. And what that means is the person was one way. And our goal is to pick them up and get them back into that spiritual place that they once were. We encourage them toward their spiritual future. And that also means we don't minimize the sin. Sometimes we think that's what's loving. The world tells us, you're just intolerant. When we minimize the sin, we aren't helping restore them. We have to call the sin what it is. We disdain the sin, but we love the sinner. And our hope is restoration. When Jesus was handed the woman who was caught in adultery, you read in your homework, He called her action sin, but he loved her into a spiritual future. Go and sin no more. Ezekiel complained that the shepherds of Israel were cruel to their strange sheep. And there was symbolism there. But when I think about Christ as a shepherd, he was called the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. And when David turned to him, he says in Psalm 23, This shepherd restores my soul. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. And that's number three. We restore them with gentleness. And then number four, we restore them cautiously and humbly. Because we understand this could be me. This really could be me. Augustine said, there's no sin which any man has done, but another man may do the same. Luther says, we stand on slippery ground. If anyone waxes proud and confident, then nothing is so easy as for us to fall. But here's two wonderful truths about temptation. So that we don't have to go through life fearful that around every corner is a sin that we cannot get past, that will, that will cause us to stumble. First of all, God has equipped us. Look at Hebrews 4. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who's been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And secondly, God knows our limits. He always gives us the opportunity to say no to sin. Look at 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so you can stand up under it. When our friend, when someone in the body of Christ sins, we pick them up and send them on their way into their journey with Christ. And then we are to love those who are burdened. Look at verse 2 of chapter 6. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry 
his own load. Okay, let me ask another question here. When we know Christ, do all of our burdens disappear? No, they do not. But guess what? Now we have Christ when we have burdens. Now we have each other when we have burdens. We can do it with these helps, with this love in our life. On your outline, we hold these people up who are burdened and strengthen their spiritual walk. We pick up those who have sinned and we hold up those who are burdened. And I believe that they're really talking about the same individual here. Once our friend is back up on their feet, it's our job to help them stay there. And the word burdens in this verse is talking about spiritual failures, great temptations, spiritual weaknesses. We roll up our sleeves. We pray. We join them in fellowship. We go out of our way. We teach. We encourage. And Paul says, this is the law of Christ. This fulfills what Christ is all about. This is loving. On your outline, we do this in three ways. First, it says we lay aside a judgmental attitude. If we are to be a burden bearer for others, we cannot be arrogant spiritually. Having a sense of superiority will put distance between us and the believer. We cannot do that. Secondly, we have to assess our own spiritual life. And Paul says in this verse, don't assess your spiritual life by comparing yourself to someone else. Oh, we can always find someone who's less spiritual than we are, making us feel good about ourselves. He says, no, don't compare yourselves to others. I would think we need to compare ourselves to Christ. When we compare ourselves to Christ, we'll have a better assessment of who we are at the time. And then when it says, then we take pride This means celebrate. We are celebrating what God's done in our life, not what we have done. Ephesians 5.1 says, Be imitators of God and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering to God. We cannot evaluate ourselves by imitating other people. We imitate Christ. And we compare ourselves to his walk. And thirdly, we have to be committed to our calling. Committed to our calling. And that's from verse 5. Let's look at that again. Each one should carry his own load. Okay, wait a minute. Paul just says, carry each other's burdens. Now he's saying, carry your own load. So it looks like he's contradicting himself. Remember I said the first word, burdens is temptations, spiritual failures. It's a different word, the word load. It is a word used as a marching soldier would have a backpack on his back. These are the Christian responsibilities that Jesus gives us at our salvation. And he says they are not a heavy burden. They are just the responsibilities that we have. Paul is saying be committed to your calling Carry your responsibilities, and you'll be able to help others bear their heavy burdens. And then we're to love those who lead. We encourage those who are our spiritual leaders by being generous. Look at verse 6 in chapter 6. 
Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. And I have to say again, nobody does that better than Christ's chapel. You guys are loving and generous. It's just wonderful. I think the Judaizers were probably telling the churches of Galatia, hey, slack off on supporting these teachers. Hey, Paul picked these leaders in our church. They don't really need your support. They didn't like the teachers that Paul would pick to be leading the Galatian churches. They were teaching the true gospel. But a second thing is different here as well. It was a revolutionary idea for the Jews to actually financially support spiritual leaders among their midst. Because guess what? The Romans taxed them to support the priests. And so they were used to that just being a part of their taxing system. So this was a new thought for them to learn, I'm responsible. If I don't support these teachers with my finances or my material goods, the cause of Christ could be stopped. It's loving to support their leadership. Paul then talks about reaping the fruit of love. Look at verse 8, 7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. I think he's continuing on the theme of what we invest in when he was talking about investing in our leadership. But he says again, okay, don't be deceived. What's been the problem with the Galatian church? These false teachers have been deceiving them about everything. And now they're deceiving them about what to invest in. And Paul says, God will not be mocked. And that actually means to turn up the nose at. If we invest in things of the flesh, if we sow in the field of our lower nature, our sinful nature, we will reap destruction. We will reap corruption because we are toning, turning our nose up at God himself. And that word destruction or corruption here doesn't mean just moral destruction. It's talking about physical decay, which is the result of moral decay. And he says... Those who choose to invest in the Spirit of God, sow seeds in the higher ground, we get to reap eternal life. And on your outline, I left out the word his, but it's his love is lavish. Once at our salvation, we are removed from the realm of our sin. We are also removed from destruction and corruption. Look at verse 9. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Paul's saying here, love's harvest. It's in God's hands. I think that Christians in the early church would sometimes get discouraged because they didn't have an understanding of when Christ would be returning. I think Paul probably got discouraged. He had to keep persevering in his love and remembering that the harvest was in God's hand and that God 
had a perfect timing that they would reap what they'd been sowing. In fact, later Paul would say, I fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. In the future, there will be laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord will award to me on that day. We trust God with the harvest, and we persevere, and we don't grow weary. Look at verse 14. Paul says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the Lord has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. When you read that again, I didn't even want to talk about circumcision again. I was so tired of it. But doesn't it seem silly now? Going through the book of Galatians to realize how silly their focus was. That they weren't grasping that it's about love and sacrifice and the grace of God. The greatest symbol of love is the cross. And we're back where we began six weeks ago. Paul's saying salvation has nothing to do with us. Salvation has everything to do with God. Nothing about what we offer to God, everything about what God offers to us on the cross. On the cross, we witness the greatest act of love, and that alone is our boast. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain, I count but loss, and I pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast. Save in the death of Christ my God all the vain things that charm me most. I sacrifice them to his blood. Paul says in these verses, I'm a new creation, not because of anything I've done, but because I've looked at the cross. And my Savior bore my sins upon him. And I am trusting in that. Look at verse 17. Paul says, Finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Paul wore physical scars that proved he belonged to Jesus. And the word marks there means ownership, like you would brand cattle or an animal. And Paul's saying, don't anybody give me trouble. He's really saying, you false teachers, my marks on my body should convince you that I'm not a people pleaser. I wear signs of persecution. I'm all about pleasing God, not about pleasing men. And we should be wearing some similar scars. When we are showing tough love on your outline, we should be reflecting the sacrifices of Jesus. And here's what I mean by that. Every time we love the unlovable, the difficult, the fallen, the burdened, and every time we persevere in that love, it's a sacrifice that resembles what Jesus did on the cross for us. And so Paul ends his letter just the way he began it, talking about Jesus, the love of his life. Let me pray.
Father, we do boast in the cross because it is our salvation. May we always give you glory for that. May we walk in joy. May we rejoice today when we understand how deep your love for us is. May we represent this love in our church and in our world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.